would you turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 15. So 1 Samuel 15, you've heard me talk about a book by the title Finishing Strong, which I believe is one of the most practical and penetrating books I've read on the subject of spiritual leadership. And in it, Steve Farrar, the author, often uses metaphorical imagery to make his points, and he makes them really well. And one such image that has stuck in my mind for years is this picture of shipwreck on the high seas. And you've heard me talk about that quite extensively. And uh, the danger of shipwreck due to wrong decisions threatens every captain as well as every crew member. There's an old Greek proverb that says the pilot of a ship is worth as much as all the crew. Now that's true whether you're a pastor or a husband or a wife or a father or a mother or a youth leader or a boss or a professing follower of Christ on display before the whole world. Irresponsible decisions can bring irreversible consequences. Is that right? Well, author Steve writes, over the years there have been some monumental shipwrecks and we all know the great tragedy of the Titanic and the fascinating tale of Robinson Crusoe. Fact and fiction, poetry and song, they've all have woven around the theme of shipwrecks for hundreds of years. Some of it's true, some of it's legend, and believe it or not, some of it's biblical. I mean, just read in Acts chapters 27 and 28 about Paul's dramatic shipwreck in his journey. But you've heard me say this many, many times, and I want to say it again because it's so true. That in nautical history, there are three inescapable consequences to being shipwrecked. Shipwrecks can take you farther than you wanted to go. They can keep you longer than you wanted to stay. And they cost you more than you want to pay. You've heard me say that about sin on number, a number of occasions. In fact, I just referenced that idea recently in the series that I preached on apostasy. Well, that's because it's true that sin can shipwreck your life. One disobedient move can propel us toward the rocky threat of a shipwreck. It's a series of decisions which willfully disregard God's repeated warnings almost guarantees tragedy. As you know, I've often used that tragedy of the sinking of the Titanic as a metaphor for how spiritual shipwreck can Happened to the unsuspecting. Well, here are a few more details. I want to get into this a little bit deeper this morning. On April 10th, 1912, the ship Titanic embarked on her maiden cruise from Southampton to New York. Now, this ship was so carefully structured and engineered that it was built, as you probably have read many times, the ship that God himself could not sink. Right? Right. Listen to how she was built. She was four city blocks long. Carried the most up-to-date safety devices at the time. She featured a French sidewalk cafe and luxurious suites, but she carried only 20 lifeboats for the 2,200 passengers on board. This great ship, whose size was greater than any other, whose integrity of construction and whose engines and equipment were the best that money could buy, sailed the seas for only five days. Despite her grand send-off, she hit an iceberg and sank in just two hours and 40 minutes. A total of 1,523 people lost their lives 
in the greatest shipwreck of modern history, only 705 survivors were picked up from her half-filled lifeboats. But the Titanic shipwrecked days before she ever hit an iceberg. Now, how could the greatest ocean liner ever built shipwreck before it hit an iceberg? Well, the Titanic sealed her own fate because she failed to heed the repeated warnings of imminent danger. For almost her entire voyage, Titanic had been advised repeatedly of ice conditions at or near the position her sailing orders required her to occupy. So throughout the day on April 14th, as she approached this location, her wireless operators received at least six, count them, six messages which described field ice and icebergs on her course directly ahead. One message from the ship Athenai via the ship Baltic was not posted until more than five hours after it was received. Another message at 7.30 p.m., the Californian to the Antillian was not shown to the captain since to do so would have interrupted his dinner. Yet another message from Masaba was never taken to the bridge as the wireless operator was working alone and could not leave his equipment. The receipt of the final crucial message from the Californian was interrupted and never completed when Titanic's operator impatiently cut it off so that he might continue his own commercial traffic. There had been a visual warning at 10.30 p.m. from the Rappahannock whose Morse lamp message about heavy field ice directly ahead was briefly acknowledged from the Titanic's bridge. But there is no evidence that this vital information was ever heeded, nor was it ever given to Captain Smith who was dozing in his quarters. Now, the historical facts speak for themselves. The Titanic shipwrecked long before it ever hit the iceberg that sank it. So as we continue to look at this brief portion of the life of Saul, we find that he shipwrecked long before the situation that we're looking at here. Because Saul set the course for his own shipwreck the instant he turned from wholehearted obedience to God's revealed will. That he did not heed the warnings that were given him. Let me give you some background before we go back into this text again that I didn't give you last week. This background about Israel asking for a king like the other nations and God appointing Saul to that position. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 8 as we begin. Take a little cruise, a little cruise through these warnings, through what happened to Saul. 1 Samuel chapter 8, beginning in verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Skip down now to verse 19. 
And nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the other nations around us. That should be a a big indication right there where they were at. That our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice and appoint them a king. So Samuel said to the men of of Israel, go every man to his city. Now, I want to make a notation here and refer you back to Deuteronomy chapter 17, if you want to follow along with me, and beginning in verse 14. Listen to what the word says here. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you, whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes. That his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen notice that and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel now turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 15 now a day before Saul's coming The Lord had revealed this to Samuel, saying, About this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. And he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me. And when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Behold, the man whom I spoke to you, the one who shall rule over my people. Okay? Chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it on his head, kissed him, and said, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? Skip down to verse 6. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. It shall be when these signs come to you, Do for yourself what the occasion requires, for God is with you. He's talking to Saul. And you shall go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down to you to offer burnt sacrifices and offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. 1 Samuel chapter 12, beginning in verse 14. 
If you will fear the Lord and serve him and listen to his voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord, then both you and also the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. If you will not listen to the Lord, the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the command of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. Verse 19, then all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God so that we may not die for we have added to all of our sins this evil by asking for ourselves a king. But Samuel said to the people, do not fear for you have committed all this evil yet do not turn aside from following the Lord but serve the Lord with all your heart. You must not turn aside for then you would go after futile things which cannot profit or deliver because They are futile. For the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name, because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. But I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, both you and your king will be swept Away. First Samuel chapter 13, verse 8. It's talking about Saul now. Now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings, and he, he offered them. The burnt offerings. And as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. But Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the appointed days and that the Philistines were assembling at Mishmash, therefore I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, for now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Scary words, aren't they? And then we come to our text in 1 Samuel 15, which outlines Saul's disobedience. But there's something else that I want to show you. After this text that we're talking about today, look at the ultimate result of it in 1 Samuel 16 and verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. All right. So we start at the beginning. Saul's head and shoulders above everybody else. He's a good looking guy. Samuel anoints him king. God changed him into another man. He prophesied with the prophets. He went out and did great exploits. He had the Holy Spirit dwelling with him. He was doing all of these good things. 
Samuel gives him more commands. All of a sudden, Saul now starts to disobey those commands. Pride starts to set into his heart. He starts to believe all the stuff about himself. And the next thing you know, he's disobeying God's commands, embarking on a reign of selfish ambition until God finally says to Saul, I'm ripping this kingdom away from you, this kingship away from you, and I'm going to anoint somebody that's a man after my own heart. And then ultimately results in the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and it was replaced with an evil spirit that terrorized him. Think Judas Iscariot in the New Testament. Same pattern. So now as I pointed out last time, Saul failed his first real test of spiritual integrity. Because his half-hearted devotion had been exposed. And the result was that his kingdom would not endure. God's concerned about our obedience, isn't he? Seriously concerned about it. His ultimate pleasure is rooted in our personal obedience. Saul's problem was not that he disobeyed once or twice. That wasn't his problem. Saul's shipwreck was rooted in the fact that his heart did not belong completely to God. That was the problem. It's not that he messed up a couple of times. It's that he messed up a number of times and he kept on deciding that he was going to go his own way and he never repented from those things. His heart didn't belong completely to God. David sinned, didn't he? He sinned grievously. Did God ever take the Holy Spirit from David? Did God ever strip David of his kingship? Well, I guess you could say he did when Absalom took over, but that was a consequence. David remained on the throne, and God still calls him in the book of Acts a man after God's own heart. Why? Because David was repentant when he was found out about his sin. He wanted to follow the Lord. He didn't get on his high horse and say, my way's better than God's way. When you miss the mark and you fail to do what God desires... Let me ask you a question. When you're caught in your sin, do you rationalize it away? Or are you quick to admit that you're wrong? Quick to reverse your direction, turn from the sin, and quick to receive his forgiveness. Because that's what a man or a woman after God's own heart will exhibit. Do you acknowledge the threat of spiritual shipwreck or are you simply ignoring the warnings? Saul's shipwreck didn't have to happen. Didn't have to. All he had to do was heed the warnings and it wouldn't have happened. Like the Titanic, we can uncover at least six warnings in King Saul's experience that should aid us in avoiding shipwreck in our own lives. Last time we covered two of them. Today we're going to cover a few more, probably not all the rest. But if you're not there yet, turn to 1 Samuel 15. We're going to continue on this text in verses 1 to 35. Let me give you a quick review of the last two points. First of all, we looked at Saul's serious commission in the first three verses. Then Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek 
utterly destroy all that he has. Do not spare him. Put to death both man and woman, child and infant, oxen and sheep, camel and donkey. Serious commission given to Saul. Well, here's the principle. A serious commission demands specific consideration. Saul's commission was clear. Wipe out the Amalekites. Failure to comply would result in serious consequences upon Israel and, in fact, eventually did. And we talked about the Amalekites last week and why God said to wipe them out. By the way, this commission that was given to Saul by no way gives precedent for people in this day and age to go out and bomb abortion clinics or execute doctors who perform them or brutally murder homosexuals or adulterers or thieves or etc 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 proper biblical theology reveals that in the new testament economy we are no longer under a theocracy are we we're no longer under the laws of moses but god ruling and reigning in the hearts of men and women old testament law has been superseded and fulfilled in the new testament through the grace of Christ. Amen? Sin has been judged on the cross, hasn't it? And all who do not come to Christ in faith will eventually be judged in the end when Christ returns again. And since Christ has come, New Testament conditions now prevail until he returns to rule and reign on the earth and theocratic rule will once again prevail. So we're not going to get commissions necessarily like God gave to Saul at this point. However, having said that, let me say this. The principle of obedience remains. Saul had a divinely ordained serious commission, yet he didn't consider the consequences of not adhering to the specifics according to God's plan. Remember last week I used the illustration of that author whose mother told him, don't touch the cake? And he clearly heard her say, don't touch the cake, but she didn't say, don't touch the icing on the cake. And so you know the story that he went through, and by the time it was all done, the mother came home and said, when I told you don't touch the cake, I meant don't touch any of the cake. What part of... All of it, don't you understand? Well, that's exactly what's happening here with Saul again. And you and I, like this author was talking about, we gravitate toward minimalism when it comes to obedience and failed to carry out God's command to completion. That's what Saul did. He gravitated toward what's the most I can get away with and the least I can do to satisfy God. Well, that doesn't satisfy God at all, does it? What is it that God has commissioned you to do or me to do specifically that we have not considered carefully enough? That's the question that's begged here this morning. A serious commission demands specific consideration. The second thing we looked at last week was Saul's selfish concession. And here's the principle there, that selfish concessions result in serious compromises. So what did Saul do? Or what didn't he do, right? He defeated the Amalekites, it says. But then in verse 8, it says, he captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. 
Is that what God commissioned him to do? And he utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and not only that, but the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. And here it is, they were not willing to destroy them utterly. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Here's the key. Here's the key warning here of this point in verse 9. They were not willing. See what it says? They didn't want to follow God's commands. They were not willing to destroy all of this good spoil that they could take for themselves. It's the small little selfish concessions that lead to huge spiritual compromises. So what are they for you and me? What are those little concessions? See, Saul made a selfish concession here and ended up involved in a devastating state of spiritual compromise. And you know what? He never recovered from it because he didn't just make one here. He made a lot of them leading up to here and then following after here. He never recovered from that. And so we find that the text says that God regretted that he made Saul king. Scary verse. God grieved over the fact that Saul's heart to obey him had changed, and so did Samuel. Look at verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. God desires our complete heart of obedience. Not the idea of what's the least I'm required to do. What's the most that I can get away with? The truth is, is that sin will eventually find us out, doesn't it? Always. Because selfish concessions inevitably result in sinful compromises. We open ourselves up to spiritual confrontation. And that's exactly what happened to Saul in a big way. Now here comes the third point. The spiritual confrontation. Verse 12. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. That's pretty high and mighty, isn't it? knowing full well that he didn't. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Saul said, They, they, those people over there, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. Now he's setting up a, a distinction between him and the people. And then Samuel said to Saul, wait a minute here, wait, let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, that you were made the head of the tribes of Israel and the Lord anointed you king over Israel? And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners. 
the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Let's stop there for a minute. Let's look at Saul's pride for a moment. Verses 12 to 14 outlines that. At this point, Saul's ego is so self-inflated that I'm surprised that Samuel could even stand in the same space as Saul. His head was so big, he greets the prophet and practically dislocates his arm by patting himself on the back. Notice the emphasis on I here in verse 13. Saul came to Saul. Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I've carried out the command of the Lord. You know what someone has said? That pride's like bad breath. Everyone knows you have it but you. But Saul's self-absorbed bubble is burst wide open here by Samuel's penetrating question. What's the question? What is this bleeding of the sheep that I hear in my ears? Or the lowing of the oxen? Samuel was saying to Saul, how come you have icing all over your hands and face? <laughs> if Saul had wholeheartedly obeyed the Lord, there would have been no bleeding sheep, no lowing oxen, no royal prisoner, and no pressing problem. God wastes no words when it comes to a disobedient heart that is full of pride. Listen to what God says, it'll be on the screen if you want to take the notes. Proverbs chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. Proverbs 18, 12. Before his downfall, a man's heart is proud, but humility comes before honor. Proverbs 29, 23, arrogance will bring your downfall, but if you are humble, you will be respected. And Proverbs 14, 12, which is the same as 16, 25, says there is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. See, Saul thought he was doing something that was possibly right, but it ended in death for him, ultimately. Saul was a proud leader. He thought he was above following the specifics of what God had said to him. And that's what brought him down. You know what it was? It wasn't just his pride, but he rationalized the pride away by taking a stance of pragmatism. Pragmatism. Look at verse 15. Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen. Why? To sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. Oh, he whitewashes it with a holy purpose. We didn't follow your command, God, because we thought, well, well, we saw this good stuff here, the sheep and the oxen. We thought we would sacrifice to you, show you how much we love you. Saul wasn't fooling anybody, was he? Saul passes the buck right off the bat. He says, they've brought them. And notice what he says. He doesn't even claim that God is his own God. He says, they spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. He's already unveiling his duplicitous heart. 
But the rest, he says, well, we've utterly destroyed all the rest. See, Saul wasn't fooling anybody, much less God and this prophet, yet he resorts to the same easy escape route that almost every person caught in disobedience takes. He shifts the blame, he rationalizes the sin, and then he tries to justify his action. Notice the change in the pronouns here, I to they. Saul assumes no blame. It was the people's fault who spared the animals, yet it's clear that he was personally involved in it in verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag, it says. Secondly, notice that Saul's attempt to justify the actions of the people. He smooths it over by claiming that their intentions were good to sacrifice to the Lord. In short, he claimed that the end justifies the means. But a sacrifice offered in the midst of willful, unrepentant disobedience is unacceptable to God. How about that? And that, my friends, is a timeless, enduring principle, isn't it? Listen, friends, if you are habitually living a lifestyle, now, now I start the meddling here. If you're living an habitually sinful lifestyle and you are coming to church every week, giving your tithe, attempting to worship, taking communion, thinking that God is pleased, you are completely self-deceived. He doesn't want half-hearted devotion. He doesn't want rationalization. He doesn't want excuses. In fact, he wholeheartedly rejects that kind of thing. Warning, words of a prophet approaching. Okay? Isaiah chapter 1, verse 4, and then verses 11 to 15. Listen. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from him. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So, when you spread your hands out in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Those are pretty heavy words. And it's not that God despised or was repulsed by his own system of worship that he set up. What he's saying here is, I hate hypocrisy. He despises it when people play church. And note thirdly, false failure to identify himself with the Lord or with Samuel. I already pointed it out, but Saul says to Samuel, ah, the people want to sacrifice to the Lord your God. What about Saul's God? Where was his heart with that? So when confronted with his disobedience, Saul did what we all do. 
A lot of times, pass the buck. Goes all the way back to the garden. Adam, what have you done? Well, the woman you gave me. The serpent tempted me. He blamed everything and everybody else for his own sin. He claimed, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. It's the people. They did it. I'm a victim of circumstance. All right? It's funny when you see it on the Three Stooges, but it's not so funny here. And it's not so funny in your life or in mine. He blame-shifted, he rationalized, but what he refused to do was admit that he was wrong. But Samuel didn't let him off the hook that easy. He stopped him dead in his tracks and quickly and decisively stopped him. He says, let it go, Saul. Leave off the excuses. Look at what it says there. (laughs) The way that he he says it, it says, wait. (laughs) I don't want to hear it, Saul. Keep silent and let me tell you what the Lord said to me. So hard dealing with a prophet of God, isn't it? Look at Samuel's pointed finger here. Samuel said to Saul, you wait. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Samuel said, and I've read it already, so you know. Saul, I took you from this humble state and brought you to this place of king. Your kingdom would have lasted forever had you given me your whole heart. Why have you done what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Why, Saul? Samuel says, why'd you do it? You had God's favor. It was by grace that you were chosen, and that not of yourselves. It was the gift of God. Sound familiar? You had his anointing, you had his power. You had his spirit. You had his commission. All the instructions that you needed. God was very specific in what you were to do. You knew his will. His commands were clear. They were simple. They were understandable. They were unconfused. Why then did you not obey the voice of God? Why did you get yourself into this mess? By doing wrong. And isn't that exactly what we hear the Spirit whispering in the recesses of our own hearts when we know clearly what God's Word says and has told us and yet we simply decide to do what we want to do instead? In his book on Dr. Paul Brand, the physician who did so much to advance the treatment of leprosy, Philip Yancey relates that Brand would regularly take baths in scalding hot water. His purpose was to discover if there were any parts of his body where he may have lost his feeling because that would be a sign that leprosy had started to attack his body. You know what I think? I think sometimes that God lets us get into some self-imposed hot water. Periodically, he does that. Why? To see if our hearts have lost their feeling, lost their sensitivity to God's will. Because if we've grown insensitive to sin, something's, something's wrong there. 
So let me ask you a question. Are you in hot water right now? God got you in any hot water right now? Yet even after the convicting Saul words of Samuel, Saul still continued to rationalize his actions. He persisted in refusing to give to own up to his own disobedience and place the blame on everyone else. Look at Saul's shameless persistence in this blame shifting game. Verse 20. Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord. And went on the mission which the Lord sent me. And I've brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people, there he goes again. They took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things, devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. He repeats it again, but it implicates him. It implicates him. And you know what? Nothing's changed over the centuries. Nothing. Blame shifting is pandemic. Even among the people of God. Blame shifting has become a way of life in this country, wrote Dave Furman of the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. He says, no matter what, no matter how far we have to stretch, we find someone else to blame for our problems and our misdeeds. Whether it's men in general, or our lousy childhoods, or our lack of dates in high school, or heavy metal music, or alcohol, or drugs, well, it's not our fault we beat our kid. It's not our fault that we did all that cocaine, or shot that police officer, or turned our lives into a big, ugly, hot mess. It's not our fault. Nope, not us. No way. Isn't that what we do? One of the worst examples I've heard came across my desk some time ago. It's just when I thought America had cornered the market on frivolous lawsuits. I heard about a woman in Dublin, Ireland, who took a restaurant to court for making her gain weight. In her suit, Mary Dillard said an eatery named Lester's, quote, ran attractive advertisements and food deals that caused her to eat more than what was necessary for an adult woman, unquote. That's what it says in her suit. And she went on to say that the smell of food from the restaurant would invade her home and cause her undue hunger. So she had to go and eat it. It's ridiculous, isn't it? How much more ridiculous when you read it in the Bible? And it's plain and simple and much more serious than somebody gaining some weight. See, our baptized excuses of why we don't obey the voice of the Lord, they're just as groundless. And as we shift the blame, the voice of the Lord has to break in to make us realize, mark this now, that selective obedience is not obedience at all. It is merely convenience. There is a glaring lack of repentance here in Saul's heart in this text. A serious disregard for the warning of shipwreck. And his statement in verse 20 was total deception. And as one man has said, deception never covers disobedience. It makes it worse. Count on it. Your sin will find you out 
and it will take you farther than you want to go. Saul lied. He did not obey the voice of the Lord, not even close. Sure, he did go out on a mission. I guess you could say that. But he failed to carry it out according to the Lord's instructions. He brought back Agag alive. He did not utterly destroy the Amalekites. And they show up again very quickly a few years later to attack and destroy Ziklag, the residence of David in 1 Samuel chapter 30. And possibly even later we find the remnants of this showing up in the book of Esther, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, when it talks about Haman. Remember Haman that wanted to destroy Mordecai, the Jew? Guess who Haman was? He was an Agagite, a descendant of Agag, they think. And he sought to destroy all the Jews. No wonder God said, wipe them all out. Friends, the same is true regarding the things in our lives that God wants us to place under the ban or to utterly destroy or to turn away from or to stop doing. If we only partially obey, they're surely going to rear up their ugly heads at a later time and wreak havoc with our spiritual lives. Things like lust and lying and deceit and misguided passion, and anger, and selfish ambition, and jealousy, and bitterness, and covetousness, and unforgiveness, and all of those things, etc., 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 right? Why does God say don't? Because he's really saying don't hurt yourself. Nate Saint was one of the five missionaries who were killed by the uh, natives of Ecuador, and he once said that his life did not change until he came to grips with the idea, now mark this, that obedience is not a momentary option. It is a die-cast decision made beforehand. I will obey, no matter what the costs. Now, yes, we don't always do it perfectly. But when we fall and we're caught in it, and then so, God points it out and the Holy Spirit points it out, don't blame ship. Don't rationalize it. Don't excuse it. Repent. Confess. And move on. Half-hearted obedience is not what God wants. He wants wholehearted devotion. Listen to Samuel's memorable words here in verses 22 and 23. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. This is just what we just read in Isaiah, those harsh words. God says, you know what? I'd rather not have your sacrifices. I want your heart. I want your obedience. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. These are timeless words that Samuel is speaking here. And we're going to see them show up again later in Psalm 51 when David admits his sin. For rebellion, it says here in verse 23, is as the sin of divination. And insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. 
When it says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, you know what that literally says? It says, you have made it as nothing. Literally, that's what it means. Saul attempted to convince Samuel that they disobeyed the Lord's command in order to honor the Lord with their sacrifices, if that was possible. It's not possible, is it? You cannot willingly transgress God's clearly revealed will and expect to honor him in the midst of that rebellion. God says, do not steal. Right? There's no black and white there, right? So you decide, well, I want to give the Lord a big offering, so I'm going to go rob a bank tomorrow, and then next Sunday I'm going to put a huge check in the offering. God will be pleased with that. You think? How ridiculous does that sound to you? You can apply your own situation there. Samuel and Saul here were dealing with that very same thing. Oh yeah, God doesn't care that if I moved in with my girlfriend or boyfriend and we're in a sexual relationship and we're not married. He didn't care about that. He does care about that. See, through a long series of tiny concessions, Saul's disobedience spiraled downward to a place that neither he nor anyone else could have ever imagined that he would be. He went from being a powerful tool of the Lord to being a pathetic instrument of Satan. You could see the trajectory, the journey. He spiraled down to despair. Listen to what happened to him. First of all, in in chapter 13, he disregarded God's prophet's words. Secondly, he disobeyed God's purpose here in chapter 15. Then he destroyed God's priests. If we go ahead to chapter 22, you find out that he killed the priests of God. It's Saul. He's spiraling out of control now. And then he degraded God's person. You know why? Because he resorted to witchcraft. To try to discover God's will. Why? Because God had taken his spirit away from him and had abandoned him. And so Saul had no other recourse, according to Saul, but to seek a medium out. See the downward spiral? You see where it says here, for rebellion is as the sin of divination? We're going to unpack that next time. And then in the end of it all, Saul descended into the darkness of despair and death at his own hand. He started out as king. He ended up being the first recorded suicide in the scripture. This is the downward spiral of little concessions of not giving your heart to the Lord. Saul, who started out so well, ended tragically, and he got so far from God that he attempted murder, resorted to witchcraft, and ended up committing suicide. By the way, there are only three other suicides recorded in the Scripture. Judas was the last one in the New Testament. Make no mistake, friends, that pattern of descent is still what happens today. You can read it in James. James, the Lord's brother, warned us in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, and he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. 
unconfessed, unrepentant sin is a slippery, slippery slope to destruction. It costs you infinitely more than you were ever prepared to pay. It takes you farther than you ever imagined you'd go. When God says don't, he says don't hurt yourself. Half-hearted obedience is not what God wants. He wants wholehearted devotion. And so Samuel's penetrating words, his precise words, are really, really clear here in verses 22 and 23. And the bottom line is is that God delights in our obedience. He grieves over our disobedience. So next week we're going to unravel the rest of this text. But let me give you a quick outline of, of why God grieves over our disobedience. Okay, really quickly. Number one, it reveals misplaced fear. That's verse 24. Secondly, it reveals misplaced pleasure. Thirdly, it reveals misplaced praise. Fourthly, it reveals misplaced loyalty. And then fifthly, it reveals misplaced worship. We're going to unpack all of those next time. But friends, please remember this. If you remember nothing else, that no amount of words which profess a faith in Christ can counteract a life that denies it. That's a serious, serious statement to take home. So the next time sin looks particularly attractive to you, remember the consequences of Saul's half-hearted devotion. It ruined him for life. Whatever that sin is, trust me, it's not worth it. You can take this to the bank. No matter how alluring the sin looks right now, it will wind up costing you more than you're willing to pay in the end. Because half-hearted devotion, friends, left Saul out in the cold, out in the cold. Someone has said compromise chills the soul. Compromise was the real iceberg that shipwrecked the Titanic. That was the real shipwreck. And tragically, it's it's the one that brought Saul down and others in the Bible down as well and left unchecked in your heart and mind, it will bring us down as well. So what's the temperature of your heart today? Let me close with this. Captain Edward J. Smith He was given the honor of command for Titanic's maiden voyage. The gleaming new liner was part of the prestigious White Star Fleet. Captain Smith, he was 59 years old, was senior commander of the fleet and was always given command of the ship's maiden voyage. Captain Smith had planned that the Titanic's first voyage would be his last voyage because... After he got the ship to New York, he was going to retire. At the age of 59, he was in great health, and he still had many things he wanted to accomplish in his life. Captain Smith only wanted to go as far as New York. But due to the shipwreck, he went a lot farther than he wanted to go. About 13,000 feet farther 
straight down under the sea in the wrong direction. During her single interrupted voyage, one element of misjudgment was added to another, was added to another in a deadly chain and warnings went unheeded. Errors in safety standards and navigations were combined to generate the inevitable tragic conclusion of the Titanic. Captain Smith had been headed for retirement. He wound up in an icy coffin thousands of feet below the sea lanes that he had traversed so very many times. Shipwrecks will take you farther than you want to go. But God knew that. God knew that. So he went even farther than we could ever imagine. For God so loved the world, he loved you, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And that's the truth of it. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the grace in the midst of all of that trial that we've seen Saul go through. Lord, if he had just bowed his heart to you and repented of his sin, it would have been a very different conclusion to his life. I pray, our Father, that if any of the words that were spoken here this morning were convicting to us, personally, that they may head us off from a tragic destination that we might be embarking on unknowingly. Help us, Lord God, to be quick to repent, to be quick to accept your forgiveness, to be quick to rely on Jesus and his word. And thank you for providing the way of escape. We love you, Lord. And we ask you, Lord God, to cultivate in us an undivided heart. For Jesus' sake, amen.